0: Now, as we begin today, I uh, just kind of want to set up where we're going, of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Larkin, I'm the campus pastor here at this location of Ethos, and uh, it's, it's a joy to be with you um, this morning uh, for worship, and just to see what God has for us. If you want to follow along with where we're going to be in the text today, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, page 473 in the Blue Bibles, if, you're, uh, if you want to follow along with, with those Bibles. Um, but uh, to be honest with you guys, I had a sermon prepared for today, and that's not what I'm going to do, uh, the one that I prepared. Um, you know, uh, this is an interesting thing sometimes to be uh, in, in this role in our community, to, to sort of trying to hear from the Lord all week, and, and then to also kind of ha- have a foot in our community, a foot in the text, and I guess a third foot in like culture, <laughs> and just kind of be aware of like what's going on in our lives and our world and, and what the gospel has to say for us. And, and so yesterday, obviously, you know, we had some crazy stuff go down in Virginia, and you know, I was sitting on my couch, and I had my notes on for my other sermon uh, on, on, my, on my lap, and I was just kind of going over things and refining some stuff. And I was looking over my notes at the TV, just kind of watching things unfold, and just felt overwhelmed from the Holy Spirit that I could not with good integrity preach what was in my notes in, in the middle of what was happening um, in our culture. And, and so, so today I want to talk a little bit about um, what the gospel has to say about some of what's unfolded in the last couple days in our country. And uh, just as a precursor, this, this is a little weird for us to talk about in church sometimes, Um, Maybe some of you grew up in a spiritual background or or came up in in a church where stuff like this wasn't really talked about. Um, That's kind of the church tradition I came from where every week it was just kind of like, okay, man, that felt really good. Man, I really needed that. Oh yeah, like it just, there's a therapeutic desire from the people in the church uh, for what church was supposed to be about. And that's certainly not a bad thing. Like, I want you to to come here and have weeks and moments where you feel ministered to and comforted by the people in this community and by the Holy Spirit. Like, that is absolutely a part of doing life with Jesus. But there are moments where that can't be at the exclusion of what's happening in the world, uh, where we have to see, okay, what does the gospel have to say to our lived realities? And the reality is, for a lot of us in the room, just kind of scanning the room, um, a lot of what happened yesterday in Virginia um, isn't, doesn't hit as close to home as, as it does others in our community, those that are racial, are racial minorities. And so for some of us, this is going to feel less relevant. Like, why, why does this matter as much for us to talk about? Like, it didn't affect me that much. Like, I, I agree that it's, like, not good. Like, there's some stuff we need to talk about. But but um, this is going to be part of us taking some steps, and if you've been with us the past couple of months, you've heard us begin to really lean into some of these social realities. to say the gospel is not just this intellectual or emotional or spiritual pursuit that's disconnected from the social reality of people, but that the gospel in our lives are interconnected, interwoven inextricably and cannot be separated from the social costs of sin and evil in the world. And we have to talk about it. So that's kind of where we're going today. And just kind of wanted to give you a heads up for what we're going to try and do. And uh, I hope you'll have some grace with me as I try and speak a little bit more off the cuff with, with less preparation. Um, but if you don't know what, what happened very much yesterday over the last couple days in, in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, I want to just kind of give us... Um, 30 seconds or so just to kind of have a recap. What, what happened and what are we going to be addressing? Um, and some of you maybe take Sabbath from media over the weekend. I know that there's people that are intentional about disconnecting, so it's okay if this is the first time you've heard about some of this. So yesterday, um, you know, we watched the highlights of Friday night uh, when a group of white supremacists um, and Nazi, neo-Nazis, uh, took to the campus of the University of Virginia and marched um, in support of white supremacy in, in, that, in that community. And we watched um, how the campus of University of Virginia was lit up with the light of their torches. And they congregated around monuments of the Confederacy that, uh, that they believe support their, their ideology. And then we watched yesterday as um, other rallies were staged around Confederate monuments. People marched with Confederate flags, signaling Nazi salutes. Then we watched as counter-protesters supporting justice and equality and love for each other uh, took to the streets and showed up by the thousands to march against this ideology of hatred. We watched even more as these white supremacists showed up wearing helmets and carrying shields and brandishing assault rifles, along with hundreds of clergy uh, men and women from the Virginia community, the Charlottesville community, showed up wearing their stoles and their collars to form barriers between those uh, inflicting violence. And then, horrifyingly, we watched as a man that we now know is indeed a, a white nationalist drove his car into the crowd of counter-protesters, killing at least one one woman, leaving at least fifteen more in serious or critical condition. And then, finally, we watched and listened as the leader of our country that refused to call this for what it was, saying that there were vague acts of violence coming from many different sides. So what do we do? Like, how how do we even respond to this? Do we just watch and observe and listen? Or, Or was there something that the gospel... There's something that Jesus has to say about this and what it looks like for us as a community to interact with these uh, acts of violence. So in in Matthew 5, if you wanna wanna jump into Matthew 5, verse 38 for a moment, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon, maybe like like what's happening right now on the side of a hill, and uh, we don't know if someone prompted him by this. This is something he taught on all the time, but uh, Jesus is prompted to begin speaking about violence and retaliation. He gets to verse 38, and you can follow along. Chapter 5, verse 38, he says, "'So you've heard that it was said, "'an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. "'But I say to you, "'do not resist the one who is evil.' If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him also have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is a, a place in the scriptures where Jesus really zeroes in specifically on violence and what it looks like for his followers to respond to violence in their real social context. A guy named Walter Wink that I was reading about this unpacks the Greek word resist when he says, do not resist those who do evil. That word resist means in the original language to resist violently, to revolt and rebel with outright violence. So Jesus is saying, don't offer that type of violence back. No violent resistance to anyone who does evil. Don't use violence to resist evil. So Jesus is telling us here that any form of violent retaliation is not the way of God. It's not the way of Jesus. He advocates a new way of living, one that's quite revolutionary up to this point in history, and probably still is, that there's this nonviolent resistance to oppression and imperial domination that Jesus is advocating for. He says, don't continue this downward spiral of violence where violence incites violence incites violence. Walter Wink, the, the guy that I was reading about this, uh, paraphrases it this way. He says, don't mirror evil. Gandhi would say, an eye for an eye only makes the whole world blind. But it's easy to read this passage and sometimes think, okay, so does this just mean be passive? Like, what's Jesus mean with this whole, like, turn the other cheek thing? Does this mean we just tell people to suffer unjust violence in our communities? Absolutely not. Uh, That's not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, This is not something where we just use this text to then go to people in our communities who are suffering at the hands of others and advocate for their acceptance and passivity for their suffering. The world would tell us that there are only only two options. One option is violence, and the other option is just to do nothing, to run away, to, to be indifferent. And Jesus is advocating a third way here. He's advocating um, a third alternative, active nonviolent resistance. Active nonviolent resistance. So uh, he doesn't advocate passive resignation or indifference to evil. He teaches and practices this active, steadfast resistance to every form of violence and oppression and injustice that he encounters. He just doesn't use the same means as those that are oppressing. Now, I don't think any of us in the room, I hope, w- w- would disagree with any of that and say, okay, no, I, I need you to unpack that more. I need you to, to lay that out more. I think most of us would say, okay, that, that's probably true. I, th- I think I'm with you on that, especially with the, some of the conversations around racism in our culture that we've been having over the past couple months. Racism and white supremacy don't live behind glass at the Civil Rights Museum, We're beginning to understand that they are very prevalent in our society, not only sentimentally inside people, but systemically in the systems that these people build, we, ourselves included. We see these realities of racism rear their head like, like it did yesterday in Charlottesville, when racism just escalates into violent protest and then someone does something evil. But we can't be content simply just to name it. Like we can't just say, oh man, that's really terrible. That's evil and be content with that. And and hear me, naming it is important. What the leader of our country did yesterday by silencing the true name of what happened is important. So we need to talk about um, that this is explicit racism expressed through white supremacy and not just general hatred. It's important, but it's not enough. If we, in in this community, in Nashville, in Hillsborough Village, wherever you live and do life and your work, if we want to disassociate ourselves as followers of Jesus from things called the alt-right, from white supremacy, from neo-Nazism, if we want to be against that, if we want a world that's marked by seeing the dignity and the image of God in other people, regardless of their race or their class or their background or their religion, we have to engage we have to. We have to engage in the ways of Jesus. We have to engage active, nonviolent resistance, and Jesus was creative with this. He didn't just say, uh, "Okay, you need to sit there and watch injustice, injustice unfold." You know, he goes on in that text we just read to unpack some practical ways of resisting and undermining some of the forms of injustice in their culture. And I didn't prepare enough to go into all of those ways, but Jesus is not advocating for passivity there. Uh, Really what he's doing is undermining and subverting these ways of systemic oppression in ways that uh, did not allow those people to be humiliated or further um, disenfranchised. So we can't equate Jesus' words on nonviolence with indifference here. Jesus is not advocating indifference or apathy I think a better way to put it might be selective outrage or temporal outrage where we get really angry and worked up about something for about 30 seconds, enough to hit a retweet and to post something on Facebook. I don't think that's enough. The opposite of love isn't always hate. It's apathy. It's indifference. And I've been content far too many times in my lives to observe injustice because honestly, I haven't experienced it that much I've been far too content to observe it, even to lament over it, see the pain and the hurt, and then to send out a few retweets and texts, maybe even say a prayer, and be content to let that appease uh, maybe my guilt, let myself off the hook. And that's no different than apathy and indifference. It's functionally indifferent. There's no difference between the one that is uh, functionally living into indifference and the one that is actually um, in that place. Love calls us up out of our seats. Love is on the move, it, it is active and it requires action. So it means we have to stand against hate and violence in our world. We, ha- we have to stand against it. We have to be willing to say that evil is evil and we have to be willing to sacrifice. Because love costs us something. I'm reminded of a letter that uh, Dr. King wrote when he was imprisoned in Birmingham, uh, late in the Civil Rights Movement. He was imprisoned for this type of nonviolent resistance that he was leading in his communities to those that were oppressing people of color. And he writes this letter from the Birmingham Jail and he writes it mainly to white evangelical pastors, people like me, and to white evangelical churches, honestly, kind of people like Ethos. He's writing to these people um, who empathized with his cause but didn't support him like he desired, weren't in, their, in, in the streets with him in solidarity. So I, I wrestled with whether or not to do this, but I wanna read a couple paragraphs from this letter. Um, And I I encourage you to read this entire letter at some point this week if you haven't had the chance to do that. It's called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. Um, And I think his words are really uh, powerful and apt for us on a day like today. And this is not meant to heap shame or guilt on any of us. That's not the point of of this type of talk today, this this type of sermon. Um, I want this to be galvanizing for change, not guilting and shaming. Um, But the words of Dr. King, uh, to me specifically, are are really important, I think. So this is not a direct critique of any of you individually, but I also don't want to let us get out from under the pressure that he creates with his words. So I invite you to listen. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs. A few paragraphs. (laughs) He says, I'm cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So you may ask, why direct action? Why the sit ins? Why the marches and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You're quite right in calling for go- negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community, which has constantly refused to negotiate, is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to so uh, dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. So my citing the creation of tension as part of the work of nonviolence may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth and liberation. We know through painful experience that freedom is never given over voluntarily by the oppressor. It must be demanded for by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unjustly from the disease of segregation and racism. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every African-American with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. This is where he gets real specific. I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the African American's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the Ku Klux Klaner but the white moderate who is more devoted devoted to order than to justice. Who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice. Who constantly says, uh, "I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree or participate in your methods of action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and constantly advises those to wait for a more convenient season. These are good words here. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is so much more bewildering than outright rejection. This is where I'll end his words. I've felt that white ministers, priests, rabbis, people of faith in the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, but all too many others have been more cautious than courageous have remained silent behind their uh, anesthetizing security of stained-glass windows. Human progress never rolls on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social segregation. The letter's about 10 times longer than that. It's pretty heavy. But I think his words speak prophetically into our community. I think his words challenge me specifically, as a leader of a church that's predominantly white, to not be content with indifference, to not be content with simply agreeing with a cause, but sitting idly by in the comfort of my privilege. You know, when we think about Jesus, when we think about what the gospel is, Jesus was in a place of comfort in heaven, right? A place of privilege and power. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to name that the world was suffering. That wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough for him to, to sit in his place of power and privilege and to try and fix it at arm's length. It's like, no, what did Jesus do? Philippians 2, emptied himself of everything and became nothing and walked among those who were suffering in solidarity. Advocated, worked tirelessly, gave his life for the cause of their liberation. So yes, we need to be united and condemn white supremacy in every form and uphold that it is fundamentally at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first step for a lot of us is to look inward and see that, okay, racism isn't just out there. It's not just in the neo-Nazi movement. It's in here, and it's in the systems that benefit me every single day. We gotta start there. But that's not where we stop. Racism uh, isn't just out there, but it is out there. We have to take a step further. Until our lives are actually in the fight and we're in proximity with those for whom this fight is much more serious, all this, what I'm doing right now, is just kind of glorified venting. It's important. It's important to name it, but it, it's ultimately lip service. So, my charge to you today, my word for you today is to oppose racism in every single form that it uh, prevails in our communities. Do it courageously, uh, do it non-violently, but let's put our love for others and our opposition to racism into action. Commit to fight every way that racism cascades down into our systems of healthcare, of education, of voting laws, of police enforcement, of housing, and more. So if you're ever wondering, okay, I wonder if I lived during the civil rights movement, what would I have done? Like, would I have been out there with Dr. King? or Would I have been content on the sidelines? Would I have been one of these people that Dr. King was writing to, calling them out for their uh, contentedness to be at arm's length? Or would I have been in the fight? This is your opportunity. Like, we have an opportunity not to stay on the sidelines, to follow the example of Jesus, to use uh, that which has brought us power and privilege, the color of our skin, to use that which has been given to us, and to lay it down, to empty ourselves, to walk in solidarity with those who are affected by this in their every single day realities. So I know talks like this. It's like, oh, man, Wow. Big stuff, heavy stuff. Ha! What do I do? <laughs> like, how do I even go out of this place with any sort of direction uh, that's not consumed with despair? A few weeks ago, about a month ago, we, we spent a whole day talking about racism and what the first step is for the church uh, to pursue racial reconciliation you know, Daniel Warner, who came and spoke with us that day, talked about how the first step for us is not strategy, that it's lament. That our our first step in light of some of these things is not to go out and try and fix every single thing, but to enter in with lament among those for whom this experience is much more painful. But I want to, we're going to do some lament in just a moment, but I also wanna encourage you in two ways. Number one, participate in nonviolent resistance in the way of Jesus when it's available. For some of you, this, this may mean organizing some of that stuff, but for some of you, it may be paying attention enough to what's going on in our community that you recognize when there's an opportunity to not just stay on the sidelines and to be in solidarity with That's the first one. Participate in nonviolent resistance when available. Secondly, engage our communities in policy reform that addresses the systems of racism. Educate yourself. Read read a book, read an article. If you don't know where to start, I've got a lot of books and articles that I can point you to. But We have to educate ourselves. We have to take off the blinders of how Privileged communities have benefited us for our whole lives. And that's not something to to heap shame or guilt, but it's something to open our eyes to the point where we can engage in these conversations and seek policy reform so that housing and voter suppression and healthcare and police enforcement, all of these things begin to reflect what we believe about the image of God being in every person. Like the church has to lead the way on that. If we're not, like, what, do we really even believe it? So those are the two ways that I want to encourage you. Participate in nonviolent resistance when available and engage our community in policy reform that addresses systemic racism. Okay. That's as much as I thought through. Um, So usually we have a time of communion and we're going to do that. But I want to take a moment and just have a time of lament. I'm going to invite Jared to come up and just kind of play uh, briefly, play some music, and this is what I want you to do. You know, um, this is a moment for all of us to take a moment to look inward a little bit. Um, we got to start by looking in the mirror and, and see the places of our own prejudices. Um, we, we got to start by seeing the, our own places of uh, honestly, subtle racism that we don't even realize. And, and we might not realize all of those right now and today. Um, but I, wanna, I want us to take a moment as a church, as a community, as individuals, to just kind of lament and confess and repent of the ways that we've participated in systems that have hurt others and oppressed others. So um, individually, for the next three or four minutes, I'm just gonna give you some space with some quiet music uh, just to reflect personally and to pray and ask God for forgiveness of the of the places individually that we've missed it, uh, to confess uh, on behalf of our community that we have missed it in the past. And here's two words that you, that you might um, well we'll say that for communion. Never mind. Just let's pray towards that for a second, and then I'll lead us in communion in a moment um, with with some direct prayer.